What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Did you know that God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen is one of the oldest Christmas carols known to man? In fact, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the exact time period when this hymn was written many years ago, but most historians believe it was sometime before the 1500s, prior to the Reformation period. Some say it was in the 1300s. Some say it was in the 1400s. The reality is we don't know exactly, but what we do know is that this song was birthed in a time period when worship in the church was at an all-time low. You have to keep in mind, this was a, the, the reign, a, a supreme dominating reign of Roman Catholicism in the world. And in order to understand what was being said in the sermons, in the pulpits, or sung in the songs in the church, you had to be of royal stock and you had to have had some type of formal education. Imagine... If I begin to speak, Gloria Dios, hermanos and hermanas. Imagine if I said, Soli Deo Gloria, or Dulas Christu, Iesu. Imagine if I spoke in all these different languages throughout the entire worship service. Some of you might pick up on some of them, but others of you, it would all be Greek to you. So imagine going into a worship service when the priest is speaking Latin the entire time and all you know is French or German or Spanish or English. Imagine you're singing songs, all you can gather is the tune because you can't pronounce the Latin language of the hymnal. Well, as you could imagine, it was a dark and somber time of worship in the church of that time period. And as a result, most churchgoers began to dislike the songs because they couldn't understand them. And the melodies were weird, not singable. And it was dark, minor keys. And out of this time period, we have no idea the person who wrote God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. But in this time period, in the midst and context of all of that, A song was birthed that would be sung by commoners in the streets singing melodies of God rest ye, merry gentlemen. It was not until the 1700s, in fact 1760 to be exact, when this song would be recorded in a hymnal for the very first time. And I bring all that to say this, that God rest ye merry gentlemen. If you know anything about music, you'll realize it is in a minor key. And it's a song that that we sing with A minor or E minor or whichever minor you're going to be utilizing with your guitar or instrument. We can worship God in those minor keys. And it it is in Isaiah 53. When Isaiah is singing this song of Christmas 
in a minor key. And so the title of my message is Isaiah's Song of Christmas, part two. I want to keep it in context here. Isaiah is preaching to Israel. There was a generation of God's people who would be led captive underneath the Assyrian world and empire. And that took place sometime around 700 B.C. And then around 600 B.C., give or take 100 years after that captivity, Babylon would eventually come and besiege the southern kingdom. And the nation of Israel as a whole rejected God's messenger Isaiah, rejected the content of his sermons, and as a result, they were led into captivity. But Isaiah's song here, his final song of four songs in this amazing prophecy, he's revealing that there will come a day when believers that are Jews and believers that are Gentiles will gather around the very presence of the Messiah and will be declaring this song to be true. How at one time they rejected him, but now they have accepted him. Now, I'm of the persuasion that God is not done with the people of Israel. Israel, as they are right now, are underneath the very judgment of God. But I believe, at least I'm persuaded, that God is not officially done with those people. And he has a plan in the future. And one day in the future, they will realize that this song that was sung in Isaiah's day will become their song of lament of how they at one time rejected God's anointed Messiah. Now that being said, I want to share this one key thought to you that if you leave with anything today, this is what I want you to leave with. All who believe Christ is God's anointed Messiah sincerely will love and appreciate him daily. If I could shorten that a little bit, it would be this. All who believe Christ is Messiah sincerely will love him daily. It is in verse number one, we see the idea of the Messiah being affirmed by the prophet. It is in verse two, we see this concept of the promise of the incarnation of God's anointed Messiah. And it is in verse number three, when we see this idea that the Messiah who would be incarnated, who would be promised aforetime of old and eternity past, would be rejected, despised, and disesteemed among men. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So I wonder today, do you believe that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus was the prophet that was predicted that would come by Moses? Do you believe that he was the priest that would come who was typified through the life of Aaron? Do you believe that he was God's anointed Messiah, the one who would come and die a sinner's death as Isaiah predicted 2,700 years ago? Well, if you do, then you would love and appreciate him every single day of your life. And that's what we're gonna get into today in our text. But the question is simply, what is Isaiah teaching us again? Not just from chapter 52, verse 13, 14, and 15, but now as we transition into 53, what is Isaiah teaching us about God's anointed Messiah from Isaiah 53, verses one, two, and three? Well, I'm glad you asked today because I wanna draw you in to verse number one. Would you look at this verse? It says, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
The first thought I want to share with you is the affirmation of God's anointed Messiah. It is here that Isaiah is preaching 700 years, give or take, before Jesus would come into Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Isaiah is declaring that the Messiah will come. And then he's asking a somewhat of rhetorical question. Who in the world, who in Israel has believed our message that has been reported among all? And he says, to who exactly is the arm of the Lord revealed? It is apparent that that part of the, the second question is a reference to those who would receive this message. But I want to draw your attention to this thought. I believe in verse number one, we need to consider this thought. Believe the prophet's report of the Messiah. So I have a question for you. Do you believe the totality of the prophet's message about the Messiah? Well, if you do, then you'll realize that this whole concept of the Messiah does not begin with Isaiah. It actually began in Genesis chapter 3. When Moses is writing by a divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, retelling the story of, of Adam and Eve, and, and it is in the midst of the fall that we see the promise of God's deliverance for the fallenness and sinfulness of man. Right there in the Torah. We see that, that later on, Isaiah would, would write about how this, this one that would be called Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of a little young virgin and she would call his name Emmanuel, literally meaning God with us. We see Isaiah would go on to speak about how his name would be wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, and of his kingdom and government there shall be no end. Micah declared that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So many of the prophets revealed to us the concept of the Messiah coming. And I just wonder today, do you believe the reports that were delivered thousands of years ago about the Messiah? If you do, you can be part of Isaiah's family of God. But if you do not you can be part of the unbelieving remnant that rejected Isaiah's message thousands of years ago. Believe the prophet's report. Remember what Jesus said? He's speaking the story, which I would lean towards was a historical account in Luke chapter 16. He's speaking the story where this one is saying, hey, would you just raise somebody up from the dead and tell them about the truth of the Messiah and the afterlife? And in that story, Jesus says, they have the law and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they would not believe somebody rose from the grave. If the prophet's report's not good enough for you, then surely the apostles' testimony may not be as well. So consider this. Do you believe the apostles' report of the Messiah? You have to understand, the apostles were Jewish. They were. In fact, many people give this idea today that Christianity is a white man's religion, but it's not. 
It was actually birthed in the Middle East. It is a Palestinian religion, if you will, if you want to even call it that. But nonetheless, we see that in the Middle East, that the, the apostles who were once Jewish came to the realization that this Jesus is the anointed Messiah and that he died a sinner's death, rose victoriously from the grave and ascended up on high. And then they went out and preached it. In Acts chapter two, we read this, how they're citing David, how David is mentioning how that he would die a gruesome death and he would rise again from the grave from Psalm 22 and, and from Psalm 110. And they're reporting it. And then Paul the apostle is raised up after persecuting the church and goes around the known world declaring the message of the Messiah. And then generations would pass and we would come to the Reformation. And generations would pass and we would come to modern day right now. And so listen, the, the message the prophets preached is the message the apostles preached and is the message we are to preach today. So I wonder, are you involved in declaring the good news of God's anointed Messiah? This time of the year is a great time of the year that surely we enjoy singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and all those different songs. They're fun. But the real point of this time of the year far exceeds all the activities and parties and festivities we have. It is about declaring the news that Jesus came to ransom us from our sins. Well, if you don't believe the prophet's report and you don't believe the apostle's report, then surely one day you are going to believe the Lord's report. You have to keep in mind, I believe that, that Isaiah is not only writing here from a salvation perspective, Isaiah is also writing from an end times futuristic perspective, looking far beyond just, just solely the first advent and looking into also the second advent that Jesus would come. And so we know that one of these days, the risen son of God is gonna split the eastern sky. He's gonna set his foot on the Mount of Olives. He's gonna establish his kingdom. He's going to judge the Antichrist and all those who are in bed with him. He is going to defeat all the unrepentant, unregenerate, Christ-rejecting sinners. And so it is in that moment all will believe. And so today we read in Isaiah's message here this concept of the Messiah being affirmed. But may I draw your attention out of verse two? But keep in mind, all who believe Christ is the Messiah sincerely will love and appreciate him daily. The more we understand Isaiah's writing, the deeper our appreciation from him should be. Look at verse two. It is in verse two that we see the idea of the incarnation, secondly, of God's anointed Messiah. So what else is Isaiah teaching us here? Isaiah is teaching us that the Messiah would be incarnated in flesh. The idea of the Messiah is that God would come and live with man. That's this idea of Jesus being the son of God. So if anybody ever knocks on your door and says that Jesus is the son of God, but he was not God manifest in the flesh, they don't understand the word of God in its context. The Bible actually reveals to us very plainly that Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. Jesus existed in eternity past. He did. And he walked into time uh, because he's the one who created time. So he can 
overstep all the boundaries of the laws of nature. And he did just that. In so many ways, he overcame the natural world. But in verse 2, reminds us that the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who reigns on his holy righteous throne, left the grandeur, splendor, and majesty from on high to live amongst you and me. That's amazing. That is good news. But it is in verse number two that some have misunderstood the idea of Jesus. It is in verse number two that some have overlooked entirely and said, we don't really need Isaiah 53 anymore. We can just skip that. But verse number two reminds us that he is of the lineage of David. Look at this. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Isaiah is revealing how the Messiah's incarnation was promised. If you're a student of the Bible, you could connect this back to Isaiah chapter 11 and other passages in the Old Testament prophets when they spoke about how the Messiah's lineage would be of royal lineage, of the lineage of David, the king, and he would be a new David to reign and rule. And so it is in this moment that we understand that Isaiah, you can go to Matthew chapter number one, and Isaiah is quoted in Matthew chapter one, but in Matthew chapter one, we see the idea of the lineage of the Messiah being drawn out. It's not as extended. It's not as exhaustive as Luke's lineage. You can go to Luke chapter three, and you can read the lineage of the Messiah in that way, and it's far more detailed than, than Matthew. But the point is simply this, that both of those gospels are relaying the royal lineage and the human lineage. Lineage, the divine lineage and the um, lineage of man. And that's all that's going on. He was the son of man from one and the son of God from the other. Of royal stock, he was. And that's what Isaiah is referring to here, most likely, is the case. This cannot be about the nation of Israel as the modern Jewish theologians say it is. In the context here, how could the nation of Israel die for the nation of Israel? I don't understand that. And in fact, remember I told you last week, for nearly 1,100 years into church history, after Jesus, the Jewish minds, the greatest minds in Jewish theology affirmed that Isaiah 53 was speaking about the Messiah, Jesus. But they rejected Jesus being the Messiah. And then it wasn't until around 1100-ish A.D. when the Jewish scholars decided we can't accept this anymore because there's too many parallels with Jesus. So we're going to say it's about Israel as a nation. And you can go to a modern synagogue today, and as they're reading through Isaiah, they will stop midway through Isaiah 52. They will skip Isaiah 53 and join back into Isaiah 54. Sounds fishy to me. But it's in here when we see the promise of the incarnation. But then check this out. This idea gives here that he's going to be born. He's going to come. So there is Christmas here, the song of Christmas from Isaiah 53 too, reminding us that the place where he was born was what Micah said, Bethlehem. But then it says this, it says this. He has no 
form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now this part of verse number two, as in verse number 14 of 52, is a passage where people, I don't know how they could affirm this and really believe this, but they say that from verse two of 53, Jesus was an ugly man. Now I'm inclined to believe from a historical perspective that if Jesus was not easy on the eyes, somebody at some point would have mentioned that in the writings of the early church or even the apostles would have mentioned that. But it's not mentioned. In fact, this has nothing to do with how ugly or beautiful Jesus was. It's in the context of the concept of Jesus being, uh, having, Jesus having royalty, majesty, and beauty of a king. And so the Jewish mind was, ex- was expecting the Messiah to come with great royalty, with great majesty, and great beauty as a king. Not somebody who is ugly or handsome. And so here we see the purpose was to lay down his life for you and me. God's purpose was not that Jesus would come the first time marching into town with a royal entrance. Not with great majesty and not with great beauty. You you have to understand, somebody who is of royal stock would have all the luxuries to their disposal. If they're preparing for a wedding, they literally could start a year in advance. They could have all of the the, um, physical fitness trainers. They could have all of the um, beauticians come in and make sure their makeup is precise and, and, and put their body in, in oil so that their skin is, is just picture. Everything about being in royal stock gives way to the luxuries of the world. Jesus didn't come in that way. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. Jesus didn't live in a mansion. Jesus lived in a normal home. You know, every now and then, you can have a group of people like us, and, or larger, and there will be a handful of people in that group that would be drawn out because they have just been blessed genetically. They're beautiful. Their, their beauty turns heads. But the idea of this verse is teaching us that when Jesus came on the scene, people's eyes were not turned by his appearance and the way he presented himself. He he, he was just a normal common man, is what verse 2 of 53 is speaking of. And so it's interesting that Jesus came as a normal common man because he wanted to die for the normal common person like you and me. But we know that that's not the end of the story. That the second time Jesus comes, he's going to come with royalty, majesty, and great beauty, and it will be amazing. But not the first time. 
And so then the other idea here is not just how his incarnation was promised by God, purposed by God, but it was powered by God. This was all within the very power of God's providential plan at full display. That God wanted a humble servant to die for the sins of humanity so that those who are lost could be found with no exceptions. If you're royal, if you're wealthy, if you're poor and smitten with poverty, if you're Jewish, if you're Gentile, if you're a man or a woman, if you're in bondage as a slave or if you're a free man, you can have access to this message that this King of Kings brought to the world 2,000 years ago. All who believe Christ is the Messiah, sincerely, will love and appreciate him daily. Isaiah 53, one and two should make us appreciate and love our God even more. But now may I draw your attention to verse three. What else is Isaiah teaching us from this text? Not just the affirmation and incarnation of God's anointed Messiah, but thirdly, the rejection of God's anointed Messiah. Verse three is the sobering reality that the people Jesus came to save would be the ones who would nail him to a cross. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the Jews had their own mind of what somebody should be. Have you ever listened to radio before? And you, you listen to this person, that you, this radio show, maybe you're traveling down the road, I don't know, and you're, you're hearing this radio host and, and, and you have in your mind, based upon their voice, an image that has just popped in your mind. And then you meet that person or you see a picture of them and you're like, that is not what I envisioned you to be. Or you, you hear a song of somebody on the radio and, and you, you just, or you see somebody on stage and they look like a giant, but they're actually five foot two. I don't know, maybe Israel had this image of the Messiah that when they looked at Jesus, they said, huh, this can't be him. No, thank you. Then they began to listen to what he said, and they said, this can't be him. No, thank you. Then began to watch what he did, and they said, this can't be him. No, thank you. And so as a result, they despised him, they rejected him. By the way, this word rejected comes from a Hebrew word that literally means that they reject him and they leave him as a homeless man destitute in the wilderness. That's what it means. So they rejected Christ in such a way that left him destitute, unwilling, he was unwilling to defend himself, and he died a sinner's death. He was a man of sorrows. He was. He was acquainted with grief. Yes, he was. Because his own people did not want him. Imagine having children 
who you raised them. You left them your entire inheritance. You, you gave them the best education in a private school of all things. And they, they learn Latin. They learn, they learn all these different things because they were well-trained and educated. You gave them a car. You gave them a house. And all they said is, we're going to write you off no longer once you part of my life. That's what the people did in Jesus' day to him. But I also say that's what every person does to Christ. Every single day they reject the gospel. So yes, he's full of grief. But I want you to understand this. If you believe the Messiah, you will love him. You will love him. Because it was... 2,000 years ago on that cross that, that your sins that, that you can't overcome, Jesus nailed on his shoulders. We can love him for what he did for us. But check it out now. It says, we hid as it were our faces from him. This gives the idea of the, the total rejection. I mean, I don't know. We've all done this, so, so don't lie today. You are in a place of worship of all things. You're a church. But how many of you, not by showing hands, just, just in your mind, how many of you have seen so-and-so at the Walmart and said, I'm going to go the other aisle because I don't want to talk to them today? We all have. We have hid ourselves from that person who will waste two hours of our life in the grocery store. Well, Israel, imagine Israel shopping at their version of Food Lion, pushing the carts down aisle number 11 to get that macaroni and cheese. And they look and they see that one that is called the Messiah, Jesus. And so they run away and they hide themselves from Jesus. And that's what they did in their life 2,000 years ago. And my friends, every person who does not accept the message of the Messiah is doing the same thing today. Do not run from him. Do not hide from him because Jesus wants a relationship with you today. And then again, he uses this word despised. Again, in verse three, this idea of, of hating in such a way that leads to rejection. But then it says, it uses, in, in the first part of verse three, it uses the word despise in the context of, of leaving somebody as destitute. But now, not only did they leave Jesus as de de for just off, leave him away, set him aside, he's a homeless man now, let's just treat him as a vagabond. But now he uses the word despise in the context of not esteeming him. This means that they did not give him the value that he deserved. Today, we live in a digital age, right? We have digital assets now. You've probably heard this thing called Bitcoin. Sure, it's extremely volatile. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up and down. And if we all would have known what it would have been like back in 2010, sure, we would have all put $10 in it so we could be filthy rich today. But none of us knew. But my mind, as many YouTube videos, as many articles I've tried to, to, to wrap my mind around cryptocurrency, I just, I just can't understand it. I just can't. What I can't understand is why something I cannot touch is valued so high. It makes no sense to me. But what does make sense to me is that if I can touch the work of Christ, 
with my own hands and feel the pain and agony that he went through through the word of God, then I will understand that Jesus Christ is far more valuable than Bitcoin or anything else in this world. But the Jews, when they looked at Jesus and the Romans and all guilty sinners, when Jesus was on the cross, he willingly devalued himself so that he could make you and me valuable in the Father's eyes. That's good news. So today, I wonder, do you love him? Will you accept him? Will you esteem him and value him for what he is worth? He is worth far more than the things of this world. All who believe Christ is the Messiah sincerely will love and appreciate him daily. Earlier we began with God rest ye merry gentlemen. And I want to end with two of my favorite verses that I just want to share with you. What I like about this song, about this Christmas hymn, is it's based in Scripture. Not every Christmas song is based in Scripture. It's based in Luke number 2. And in this song, it reveals to us the great gospel truth that Jesus came to save. Listen to these words. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Then the last verse Now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place. And with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace. This holy tide of Christmas, all other doth deface. Old tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Old tidings of comfort and joy. We have good tidings today. And we could be full of great cheer. Because Jesus is God's anointed Messiah. Do you love him and appreciate him? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.